This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Cool down when the weather changes. Um, I'm Tim McCall in Art History and History, and um, on, my, on behalf of myself and Dr. McGonkade, I want to welcome you all here. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank our co-sponsors, History, the History Department over there, and Romance Languages and Literatures, um, particularly the particularly Italian Studies. Um, and I also want to mention the fact that this this talk today is connected to a class that Dr. Kate and I are, are teaching um, in Global Interdisciplinary Studies on Race in the Renaissance, and it's connected to, um, I got it for you here too. it's connected to a exhibition at Princeton that's up right now called uh, Revealing the African Presence in Renaissance Europe, and it's up until June, um, and the class, we've gone as a class to see it, and everyone's writing research papers on objects, critical research papers on objects in the collection, and so I hope some of you all can um, we'll be interested in what Dr. Uh, Kaplan mentions today, and we'll also hopefully be able to see the show <coughs> as well. Um, but it's a real pleasure to introduce Paul Kaplan to Villanova. In 1983, he received his PhD in art history from Boston University. His dissertation, The Rise of the Black Magus in Western Art, and, and, and Magus is the is single for Magi, for those of you who aren't certain. Um, it was published as a book, and then short, Shortly after this, um, he received his dissertation. I got some handouts. And since then, he's published a number of very important articles for Renaissance art historians, um, investigating intersections between visibility, race, representation, and power, including those investigating um, Titian's portrait of Lord Dante with a black page, the earliest visual representations of Othello, um, War and Giorgione's Tempesta and a study on um, Isabella d'Este, an important Renaissance patron. And some of these are classes read. Um, he's best known as a scholar of Venetian art, in Venice in particular, but his publications span a great deal of time. He's, he's published on Mark Twain in Venice, um, and has a forth, forthcoming study of a 19th century um, sculptor from, from New Orleans. And he also served recently um, as a project scholar at, at the Venice Biennale here, 2000 and three um, on a project by the artist Fred Wilson. Most recently, Dr. Kaplan contributed a number of very important essays to this multi-part, multi-volume um, work, The Image of the Black in Western Art, which was directed by um, Henry Louis Gates and David Feynman or Feynman? Feynman. Feynman. Um, and beyond a number of forthcoming essays, um, he's working on a book called, Dr. Kaplan's working on a book entitled Authority and Servility, about Italian visual culture, um, visual, uh, sorry, theatrical constructions of African identity circa 1600, and also on a study of Americans, European art, and race in the mid-19th century. Um, his talk today is entitled Black Christian Africans, Black African Christians, I should say, in German Renaissance art, um, and a number of forthcoming studies that relate to that, so I hope you'll welcome, join me in welcoming Paul Kaplan. Thanks, Tim. Thank, thanks very much to Tim and to uh, uh, Megan and to Villanova for having me here. Uh, I am uh, always anxious to talk about this material, and uh, this particular moment with the show up in Princeton uh, is an excellent time to do it. Um, 
Let, let me just say a couple of words about the handout and the talk in general before I begin. Um, I uh, tend to try to cram a lot in, I, and I apologize for that in advance, but it is my way. And uh, rather than messing up my images with text, what I've given you is a kind of slide list of what you're seeing. The things in bold, and there are four of them, are the uh, um, images or groups of images that I'm going to concentrate on. But uh, if you have any questions afterward, if you want to track something down, make a connection, uh, please come up and talk to me. Um, there's also on the back of the handout a uh, uh, little uh, section, a uh, little genealogical table that I'll refer to in the latter part of the talk. Um, and finally, at the bottom, uh, four names that are going to come up a lot with very, very hardly a biography, but at least some dates and uh, the titles of these people and something about their relationship. So uh, keep those handy, uh, because if you start getting lost, they might be a way to find yourself again. The other thing I wanted to say is that this talk uh, is really, as a first section, about one work of art, not the one that you see on the screen, but one that will come up very soon for about 20 minutes. Then I'm going to shift to a related work, but a separate work, and I'm going to talk about that for 15 or 20 minutes. And then at the very end, I will turn to uh, a final third work and talk about it more briefly for the final five minutes or so uh, of the talk. And with that, uh, I think I'd like to get started. It's taken a long time for scholars in the Western tradition to notice how fascinated Europeans of the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance were by African people of color. However, the recent publication of a now complete edition, eight volumes, uh, of the image of the black in Western art, uh, a research project sponsored by the Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, and the even more recent appearance of a major museum exhibition, revealing the African presence in Renaissance Europe, which originated at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore and is now on show at the Princeton Art Museum, uh, suggests that this topic has now claimed a more central position in historical and art historical studies. And I should add to that uh, uh, the creation of uh, Tim and Megan's uh, course uh, as also part of the wave of interest. Both in Europe and here in the U.S., the continuing challenge of confronting the legacy of slavery and colonialism, a vital part of any serious attempt to purge contemporary society of the stain of racism and construct a more equitable world order, has intensified our need to understand both the experience of black Africans in Renaissance Europe and the variety of ways in which Europeans conceptualized and represented dark-skinned peoples in this era. This talk addresses a little-known aspect of this broader field, the depiction of black Africans in German Renaissance art. European demographic data from around 1500 does not make uh, the German lands seem like a fruitful area to study in this regard. The largest numbers of black Africans present in Europe during this century were to be found in Spain and Portugal, the first major powers of the Atlantic slave trade. There were also considerable numbers of black Africans in Italy, 
especially in port cities like Venice and Naples and on the island of Sicily. Antwerp and other seaports in the Low Countries undoubtedly had some black African residents and visitors, and even England, by the end of the 1500s, had enough people of color that there were several attempts to expel them as undesirable aliens. While there must have been some black African visitors too and residents in German-speaking lands in the 1500s, so far little documentary evidence has surfaced about them. But surprisingly, since the middle of the 1200s, German artists and patrons had been especially eager to depict people of color and to depict them in novel roles and contexts. The roots of this phenomenon are connected with the German dynasties who dominated the imperial throne of the Holy Roman Empire. Since at least the 1230s, during the reign of the Emperor Frederick II of Hohenstaufen, people of black African descent began to appear in German-speaking lands, and German artists, encouraged by Frederick's display of his black African court retainers, soon sought to create images of people of color. Italian artists under Frederick's sway produced secular images, like this extraordinary fresco of the 1230s from Verona, of black Africans among the nations venerating the emperor himself. Uh, and uh, you can see the group here, and Frederick II over here. But the first German visual response, the first German visual responses to black African identity are in the context of religious art. This approximately 1240 statue of St. Maurice from Magdeburg in northern Germany is evidently the first instance of this prominent imperial saint, a Christian Roman soldier, the legend says, from Egypt martyred with his troops for refusing to kill other Christians. Uh, this is evidently the first example of this saint being shown with the features and complexion of a black African. By the 1400s, such images were normative in this part of northern Germany. There was also a German tradition of showing certain pious Gentiles, like the Queen of Sheba, and one of the three magi as dark-skinned. The earliest black queen of Sheba in Nicholas of Verdun's Kloster Neuburg altarpiece, which goes all the way back to 1181, uh, uh, is on the left side of these screens. But there are also examples from around 1400 on the right side, uh, such as this wall painting from Brixen in the Tyrol. The black African magus in the Adoration story first appeared in the late 1300s. By 1437, as in this work by Hans Mulcher from Swabia, the figure began to become standard in German lands. This iconography was gradually exported to the rest of Europe. Pious black African figures like the magus in St. Maurice were highly visible in German art by 1500, but their function as tokens of Christian universalism, that Christianity is universal religion because people of such different appearance uh, can be attracted to it, 
But their function as tokens of Christian universalism meant that it was unusual for more than one of these black protagonists to appear in a single image. A notable exception to this rule is Hans Baldung's 1507 Halle altarpiece commissioned by Ernst von Wetten, Archbishop of Magdeburg. Even so, Baldung made sure to place St. Maurice on the right wing of, the, of his altarpiece at a significant distance from the Black Magus, who stands at the left margin of the central panel. What relation do images such as Baldung's have with the still poorly studied African population of Germany in the early 1500s? Albrecht Dürer's Katharina of 1521, on the left side, was created in Antwerp in the Low Countries and rendered an African servant to the Portuguese business representative there. Might Dürer's other fine drawing of an African, on the right, which bears the date 1508, have been based on a black resident of or visitor to Dürer's native Nuremberg? It's impossible to say for sure, but the multiple black African figures in an anonymous German altarpiece of about 1515 to 1520, recently bought by the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, suggests that sacred imagery can be tied to the actual presence of black Africans. Uh, and you see the altarpiece in two pieces, the central panel and the left wing uh, on the left, central panel and the right wing on the right. But you want to have those two central pieces overlap. <clears throat> the Kallenberg uh, altarpiece's central panel depicts the mystic marriage of St. Catherine, uh, wedding the Christ child symbolically, observed by Saints James, Lucy, Peter, and Paul. This is James over here. We'll come back to him a little later. The left wing of the altarpiece is occupied by St. Maurice and five soldier comrades. This left panel is one of a group of German images of Maurice with his companions made between 1510 and 1530. The earliest of this group of images is a 1511 panel by Georg Jener von Orlamunde, which forms part of the high altar of the Church of St. Maurice in Halle. Halle, uh, not far from Magdeburg, had recently become one of the chief centers of the cult of Maurice, thanks to Archbishop Ernst of Magdeburg in office between 1476 and 1513. Maurice appears several times in sculpture and painting in the earlier pre-1500 phase of the elaborate high altar project of which this work here was a part, but Jainer's contribution was a group of three black African companions to the saint. That's what you're seeing there. Including not only the companions, but also Maurice himself, and therefore more closely related to the group in the Kallenberg altarpiece, is now this circa 1520 picture on the right side, perhaps made in Münster and now in the Houdsticker collection. The Houdsticker picture includes nearly three times as many companions of Maurice as the Kallenberg panel, and was almost certainly inspired by it. And by the way, I should say that this picture is one of the glories of the show, uh, a real revelations of the show in Princeton, uh, uh, the painting on the right. Uh, 
Like the Kallenberg panel, it includes a range of complexions and physiognomies which acknowledge variations in the appearance of Africans, moving from dark figures at the right to a medium brown Maurice in the center, you can see him here in this detail, uh, <clears throat> to uh, relatively light-skinned characters at the left. In the Kallenberg panel, however, the companions all have emphatically dark skin, though only the bareheaded soldier at the right, seen in this detail, unquestionably displays all the standard attributes of black African physiognomy as it was then understood by Europeans. Dark complexion, full lips, wide nose, and tightly curled hair. By contrast, Maurice himself in the Kallenberg panel shows only a few of these traits. His skin is tawny and by far the lightest of the group. His nose is bony and projecting. His lips are hidden by a bushy mustache, rarely worn by black Africans in European art. And his hair, though very curly, is much longer than the norm for European images of black Africans. Unlike the figure to the right, his companion, Maurice does not wear an earring, an embellishment that was one of the most typical attributes of black Africans in European artworks. There are, in fact, several images from this era of a black Maurice with white companions, but it's most unusual to find an evidently North African or perhaps Mediterranean Maurice with darker companions. Does this imagery reflect the artist or the patron's discomfort with the concept of a major black African saint? If so, it would have been an unusual response in northern Germany, where the black Magus as well as the black Maurice had been familiar for some time. Kallenberg, however, is some distance from the German epicenter of the uh, black Maurice cult in Magdeburg and Halle. Let me map his projecting small. Kallenberg is over here. And you can see that the concentration of images of Maurice's black is between Magdeburg and Halle, that big round dot right there. So Kallenberg's at the edge of the zone where Maurice was represented uh, as a dark-skinned figure. Indeed, the more obvious question about the Maurice panel of the Kallenberg altarpiece is why it was commissioned at all, given that the saint was not the special object of cult veneration in the Kallenberg region at the edge of the province of Westphalia. The answer to this question lies in the work's patronage. The kneeling donor on the right side of the central panel, right here, <coughs> is Erich I, or the Elder, Prince of Kallenberg, Göttingen, and Duke of Braunschweig, Lüneburg. His title is almost bigger than the territory he ruled. Uh, he was uh, uh, on his princely throne between 1495 and 1540, and he was a noted military uh, commander for the Holy Roman Empire. Neither he nor his blood relatives were especially connected to the cult of Maurice, but the situation is quite different with respect to his first wife, Catherine of Saxony, who kneels in what is actually a more honorific position at the Virgin's favored right hand on the left side of the central panel. 
Catherine, 1468 to 1524, you can see her here, right, was the first cousin of Archbishop Ernst of Magdeburg, who, as we've already seen, promoted the cult of the Black Maurice in Halle, as well as Magdeburg, and who commissioned both Hans Baldung's altarpiece with Maurice and the Black uh, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, Magus and Jener's panel with Maurice's Black Companions. In 1521, Catherine's brother, Duke Henry the Pious of Saxony, named his newborn son and eventual successor Maurice. Catherine and her entourage, rather than her husband Eric, occupy the zone which adjoins the St. Maurice panel to the left. Looking at the whole picture, she's closest to Maurice. A chronicler of 1584 informs us, in fact, that it was Catherine who had commissioned not only this altarpiece, but also the Collenberg Castle Chapel, on whose high altar it was installed. Today, uh, that uh, uh, castle is privately owned, but I crept up on it. I stalked it last, sum uh, last summer and took this photograph of the towers of the castle in which the chapel is located from afar. Oddly enough, Duke Eric seems to have had a taste for spouses whose relatives were devoted to Maurice. After his wife Catherine's death in 1524, he immediately married Elizabeth of Brandenburg, the niece of Cardinal Albrecht of Brandenburg, who in 1513 had succeeded the above-mentioned Ernst as Archbishop of Magdeburg. Albrecht commissioned the most famous image of the Black Maurice by Grunewald for display in Halle either just before or just after 1520, as well as a series of other images of Maurice. We'll come back to Albrecht. The Kallenberg altarpiece's most remarkable representation of a black African figure is to be found not on its left wing, Maurice and Companions, but on its central panel. Among the handsome group of four ladies-in-waiting, and we're looking at this group down here, Okay. who kneel in prayerful posture behind Duchess Catherine in the central panel, one is a person of color. Her hair, like, those, uh, uh, like that of the other woman, women, is hidden inside a tall, bulging container. But her dark complexion, upturned nose with a low bridge, and slightly fuller lips leave no doubt that she is intended as a person of black African descent. Her costume, like those of her three uh, uh, fellow, la fellow ladies-in-waiting, I don't know if that's the right term, uh, is less costly than that of the Duchess, but fundamentally similar with a low neckline. Like the others, her hands have come together in prayer. Uh, the hands are visible down here, okay? Um, no doubt responding to a finely drawn internal hierarchy among Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, the African woman is placed in the second pair at the extreme left, uh, which also makes her function as something of a transition to the dark figures in the left wing. So this is actually how the two panels are juxtaposed. She's very close to the Maurice panel. But it should be noted that she does not look toward them, and her contemporary 
rather than historical sacred status, is emphasized by her much smaller size as compared with Maurice and companions. Saints shown very large, living individuals shown much smaller. I presume that this woman is a portrait of an actual lady-in-waiting to Duchess Catherine, though there is no published documentary evidence yet about such a person. It need hardly be said that the presence of a black woman is extremely unusual in German and European donor portraits, even among the subsidiary figures flanking a principal donor. It's true that since the time of Emperor Frederick II, European ruling families had often kept black court servants, and this fashion was on the rise around 1500 in northern Italy, where secular works of art sometimes recorded such retainers. In Montaigne's 1492 drawing of Judith and her maidservant with the head of Holofernes, one of Isabella d'Este's black maidservants is inserted in a sacred subject to make the association between Judith and Isabella more explicit. Similarly, a miniature in the Flemish Grimani breviary of about 1515 representing the Queen of Sheba before Solomon may liken the Queen to Margaret of Austria, the powerful Habsburg governor of the Low Countries, whose nephew, Emperor Charles V, employed one Christophe Le Moor, Christopher the Moor, in his entourage. It's been suggested that Christophe was the subject of a remarkable portrait about 1520 to 25 of a black African man in European dress wearing a Christian pilgrim's badge that's up here, on his hat, painted by Margaret of Austria's favored artist, Jan Mostert. The black woman behind the Queen of Sheba in the Grimani breviary, and here's her detail again, is part of a group of five ladies-in-waiting, who indeed seem reminiscent of the ladies behind Catherine of Saxony in the Kallenberg altarpiece. The woman with the dark complexion is in roughly the same position as the African woman in the altarpiece. But the manuscripts ladies-in-waiting are not donor-like, since they neither kneel nor put their hands together in prayer. Only in the Kallenberg do we sense that the dark-skinned woman is engaged in the spiritual significance of the scene. Catherine of Saxony was in fact second cousin to Margaret of Austria, but it's rather through Catherine's mother's family that we can build a reasonable case that the black woman in the Kallenberg altarpiece denotes a particular person. And bear with me here, and you might want to look at that little uh, genealogical table on the back of the sheet. Catherine's mother was Zedena of Bohemia, the daughter of the Bohemian king George Podjebraj and his wife Joanna of Rosmital. Catherine's great-uncle was the Bohemian noble Leo of Rosmital, who made a famous pilgrimage all the way to Santiago de Compostela in northwestern Spain in 1465 to 67, during which he promoted the ambitious diplomatic interests of his brother-in-law, King George. After completing his pilgrimage, Leo continued on to Portugal, where he noted thousands of black, of black slaves acquired on the West African coast. This is when the Portuguese slave trade is first really expanding. When King, Af King Afonso V of Portugal asked Leo what gifts he would like, 
Leo requested two black slaves. Afonso's brother burst out laughing, according to the chronicler, since he saw such slaves as common possessions of little value. Leo, however, was careful to bring the slaves home with him to Bohemia, where they were still rarities, and it seems pla plausible that the woman depicted in the Kallenberg altarpiece was the daughter or more likely granddaughter of one or both of the slaves. They may have been a couple. One of the other oddities of the Kallenberg altarpiece is that although Duchess Catherine kneels just behind her namesake, St. Catherine, here, of Alexandria, she and her ladies-in-waiting are actually presented by St. James over here. He's gesturing toward them. In light of Leo of Rosmital's famous pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James in Santiago de Compostela, the presence of St. James, as well as the black lady-in-waiting below him, may have been intended to allude to that part of the Duchess's heritage. But if the black woman in the Kallenberg altarpiece is a descendant of Leo's slaves, she had surely risen beyond her forebears in social position. Her elaborate costume and her pious posture and expression mark her as a courtier of some status. Her juxtaposition with the black companions of St. Maurice suggests that the ducal patrons believed it was appropriate for a black Christian to venerate pious Africans, but she's not marginalized by being shown as devoted only to Maurice and companions. A 1530 depiction of the discovery of the true cross by St. Helena by Bartel Beham also includes two people of color of a contemporary type who, dom who demonstrate their Christian piety. St. Helena, a portrait of the Bavarian Duchess Jacobea of Baden, is attended by a large group of elegantly dressed, kneeling ladies-in-waiting, one of whom is a black African woman. You can see her here. As in the Kallenberg altarpiece, this woman is in the second rank of female courtiers, but and nearly, but not quite, at the furthest left of the panel. There is also a young black man present in the center of the composition. The, particular, the particularity of the appearance of both African characters suggests that they may refer to actual Bavarian court servants, though as with the Kallenberg figures, the archival research remains to be done to confirm this. Because so much of the history of the black presence in Europe has been effaced and forgotten, it's important to follow these leads, though of course they may not result in the identification of individuals. The recuperation of such individual lives, however, can also be important for understanding the origins of some of the broader cultural constructs of black African identity by Europeans. In the light of the pious African ladies-in-waiting in the Kallenberg altarpiece in Beham's True Cross, it's tempting to speculate about the surprising, though short-lived, promotion of a sister saint to St. Maurice, St. Fidus. Fidus seems to have been the creation of Cardinal Albrecht of Brandenburg, for whom a reliquary bust of the saint was designed, known today only through a 1526-27 watercolor copy, which shows a young black woman in elaborate costume. The cult of Fidis did not survive Cardinal Albrecht, but it's worth noting that a portrait of Albrecht, 
in the guise of the fourth century Archbishop Macarius, I think that must be my next one, that a portrait of Albrecht, and it's, this is over here, uh, <clears throat> appears next to Duch Duchess Jacobe uh, of Baden, who's masquerading as St. Helena, and not far from her black lady-in-waiting in Beham's uh, discovery of the true cross. Perhaps Cardinal Albrecht had begun to feel that there was a small but visible demographic constituency that needed a saint in its own likeness. Now at this point, I'd like to switch gears and turn my attention to another German work from around 1520, one that's perhaps even more startling in its implications than the Kallenberg altarpiece. But I should confess that here I'm going beyond the parameters of the official title of this talk because the figure represented is not a Christian. Nevertheless, there are good reasons for considering this work in conjunction with the Kallenberg. Among the many thousands of pre-modern European images of people of African descent, depictions of a person writing are nearly non-existent. In the 1600s and later, this striking absence is due above all to the gradually emerging racist consensus among whites that black Africans were incapable of higher thought and of the advanced literacy needed to express such ideas. This repulsive notion, driven in part by the urge to provide an ideological justification for enslaving black Africans, gathered force in the 18th century and was perhaps most famously articulated by the philosopher David Hume. Yet in 1520, the German painter and illuminator Hans Hauser created a potent image of a writer of color. Hauser's picture is an author portrait and depicts the early 9th century Jewish mathematician and astrologer Saul ibn Bisher, most commonly known in the West and in this manuscript as Zabel. An influential astrological treatise by Zabel, translated from its original Arabic into Latin and in manuscript form, follows Hauser's miniature. Zabel leans forward at a lectern, toward which he peers through a pair of spectacles. I'm sort of identifying with him in a moment. And his words pour forth from his pen onto the half-filled page of a book. A strangely lion-like little white dog, scratching itself, looks up at the scholar, and an hourglass, back here, a device uh, for measuring the time, which is so crucial to any astrological calculation, is placed on a low bench toward the back of the columned hall. If one could convert the dog into a proper lion, one would be tempted to take this scholarly figure as a depiction of St. Jerome, who was often equipped with both spectacles and an hourglass. And uh, here are Jerome's spectacles in this late 1400s Italian uh, image, and the hourglass part of it is visible right up here. Zabel himself has dark skin, much darker than that of the other similar figures in the manuscript tightly curled hair, and the full lips and upturned nose often assigned to black African figures in this period. The German scholar who first published this miniature in a 1499 book on manuscript illumination, 
noted the figure's dark skin, but the few others who've referred to this miniature have often failed to register this feature. What factors might explain the unexpected presence of a depiction of a black and Jewish scholar and writer in a German manuscript uh, from this period? I'm not sure I have a complete answer to this question, though I did get a look at the original work now in Krakow, Poland, last September. Among other leads I'm currently following, there's a manuscript up at Cornell I need to learn more about. I'm still waiting for further info from the curator of the witchcraft collection at Cornell. Uh, that, I feel, is a job that I'd like to have, but anyway. Uh, from uh, 1868 uh, to 1945, this manuscript, the one that I'm showing you here, not the one at Cornell, was in the Prussian State Library in Berlin. Since 1945, it's been in Krakow's uh, Jagiellonian University Library. Here's what I know about it so far. Concerning Hans Hauser, the painter of this work, uh, we don't really know too much. In 1519, we do know that he was a burgher, a citizen of Nuremberg, the central German city noted for its skillful artists, the most famous of whom was, of course, Albrecht Dürer. Dürer's images of black Africans are numerous, impressive, and varied, and include not only the two drawings I showed earlier, but also a 1523 woodcut of his own personal coat of arms with the bust of an African in the crest. Dürer's 1504 Adoration of the Magi is one of the most splendid in German art and contains uh, an expertly rendered young black African wise man. According to one view, Hauser was strongly influenced by Dürer, and his Zabel on the left bears more than a passing resemblance to Dürer's uh, uh, Magus, what, on the right, sorry, uh, more than a passing resemblance to Dürer's Magus on the left. But it is, of course, not enough to claim that Hauser might have been swayed by Dürer's fascination with Africans. No illuminator in this period would have introduced the dark skin and African physiognomy, which are the most salient features of the Krakow miniature, without the approval of the manuscript's patron. And it's highly probable that the decision to add these features originated with the patron himself. Now, luckily, we know a good bit more about the man for whom the manuscript was made. Joachim I. Hohenzollern, elector or prince of Brandenburg. Joachim was born in 1484 and from his father's death in 1499 ruled an expanding state which was eventually to absorb the kingdom of Prussia. Like the other Renaissance rulers of Brandenburg, he adopted a learned nickname, Nestor. Joachim was by most accounts not so wise as his namesake and he was quite tight-fisted with regard to the arts in general, but he was well-educated and especially taken with astrology. Several of the multiple heraldic emblems appear at the base, of his multiple heraldic emblems, appear at the base of the Zabel page, down here. Uh, and he is plausibly supposed to be the figure kneeling at the foot of the author portrait of the ancient savant Porphyrius, whose astrological text constitutes the second part of the Krakow manuscript. Rulers like Joachim were often obsessed with astrology's potential to guide them through, or at least warn them about, the turbulent political changes of this era. 
But as one modern scholar has put it somewhat euphemistically, Joachim also looked to the stars to help produce a Viagra effect. Okay. Don't ask me how that works, by the way. This manuscript is, as far as I know, the only richly illuminated book produced for him. The decision to make Zabel a black African in the miniature does not seem to be based on any clear-cut historical, biographical knowledge or legendary belief about this astrologer. Today, it's known that Saul ibn Bishr, to use the most common version of his original name, was a Jew from Khorasan, a Central Asian region uh, in northern Iran and beyond. He served at the courts of two powerful Muslim administrators, including the Caliph's uh, vizier, and in, in what are now Iran and Iraq in the early 800s, and wrote his scientific texts in Arabic. Modern Jewish scholars have shown little interest in him since he did not write about Judaism, didn't write about religion. Saul, that is to say, Zabel's writings have played a significant role in the Western astrological tradition, having been translated into Latin and Spain during the Middle Ages. And one of his treatises, not the one in the Krakow manuscript, has just been republished in a capable English translation. So he's still an authority. Nor is there much in the actual text of the Krakow manuscript to shed light on the ethnic characterization of the author portrait. The treatise itself on the interpretation of various events according to the moon in the 12 signs of the zodiac is a convenient reference work which explains how a range of fairly ordinary occurrences, itchy feet, vomiting birds, uh, vomiting birds fighting overhead, um, uh, ringing in the ears, are to be symbolically understood by observers with different astrological signs. One of these interpretations foretells a fleeing servant which may have originally, in the 800s, in the Islamic world, signified a fugitive slave. But the rather cute small illustrations that you see here along the side uh, are only about the banal initial events, like ringing in the ears, and they don't show what's going to happen, like the, 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 the fugitive slave. The only other figure in the Krakow manuscript with at least slightly dark skin in one of these small illustrations uh, is a man who illustrates open lips. If you see someone with open lips, something's going to happen. And here the choice of a darker complexion may have been suggested by the emphasis on lips, salient feature of characterizations of Africans in the European tradition. The only descriptive ethnic term assigned to Zabel in the Krakow text is sage of the Arabs. This phrase appears not in the main body of the treatise, but rather in the short preface. This discourse is ostensibly in the voice of the ninth century author, but sprinkled with phrases admiringly addressed to Nestor, that is, the elector Joachim. So we can be certain that the preface was at least edited by the scholar who prepared this manuscript edition. According to several of the later published editions of this text, the editor was a youthful scholar and astrological prodigy named Ioannis Carion, 1499-1537. Carion was a close friend of Philip Melanchthon, the humanist and Lutheran. They'd studied together at university, and he eventually authored an influential, concise world history. Luther was dismissive of the corpulent Carion, and generally hostile to astrology, but Melanchthon, 
retained his fascination with the discipline. In any case, Joachim is believed to have brought Carrion to the court of Brandenburg in 1518 or 1519, and the young man published a major prognostication, a prophecy in 1522, in which he advertised his official position under Joachim. His name doesn't appear in the Krakow manuscript, but the first published edition of Zabel's treatise uh, uh, of 1592 makes it quite clear that Carrion had prepared Zabel's text for Joachim. It's therefore possible that Carrion could have made the choice about Zabel's ethnicity in the miniature, but I can think of only one rather tenuous reason he might have done so. Close as he was to Melanchthon, uh, and as his, um, he may have wished to make an association between Zabel and Melanchthon, and as his humanist friend's name, both in Latin and the original German, Schwarzerd, means black earth, African complexion and features may have conveyed the idea. This theory does not, however, explain why an African Zabel would have been acceptable to the elector Joachim. But Joachim, as you no doubt realized from the earlier part of this talk, would have had extensive exposure to the visual celebration of black African identity. Just outside his domains, this is where he ruled, Brandenburg, okay, just outside his domains lay the cities of Magdeburg and Halle, the regional centers of the cult of St. Maurice, where from the 1240s and only in this general region, artists depicted the saint as a black African. By 1400, Maurice was also being shown as a black African by artists in Brandenburg, the capital of Joachim's state. Painted and sculpted images of the black St. Maurice became much more frequent around and just after 1500. Now, Joachim was in fact the older brother of Albrecht of Brandenburg, an extremely important cultural, religious, and political figure who's already come up several times in my presentation. Albrecht was born in 1490 and was officially Joachim's co-ruler of Brandenburg from their father's death in 1499 until he decided to make a career in the church in 1513. In that year, Albrecht was appointed Archbishop of Magdeburg, uh, and he uh, received uh, other titles and a cardinal's hat by 1518. Cardinal Albrecht enthusiastically embraced the cult of the black Saint Maurice, whose remains held a major position in Albrecht's famous collection of relics at Halle. Albrecht commissioned the most widely known image of Maurice, painted by Grunewald around 1520. We've seen this before. And the features of the saint in that picture are, in fact, quite similar to those of Zabel. By 1520, Albrecht had become the foremost Catholic prelate and defender of the cult of relics in Germany, and his several commissioned images of the Roman soldier Maurice functioned in part as an expression of anti-Lutheran ideology. The Black Maurice also appeared as a heraldic supporter on Albrecht's coat of arms. There he is on the left. Other African characters appear in splendid works made for Albrecht, including this probably female observer of a religious procession uh, in the precious Missale Halense manuscript of 1523. See the female figure down here. I should also remind you that St. Fidis, purported to be Maurice's sister, was evidently an invention of Albrecht's. 
Though I strongly suspect that either Albrecht or Joachim kept black African slaves or servants in their households, I cannot yet prove this with documentary evidence. Hauser Zabel, of course, is neither a saint nor even a Christian, but the astrologer's learned confidence and authority are not surprising in the context of Albrecht's preoccupations. Albrecht and Joachim remained close in the 1520s, and the black Zabel must reflect a shared attachment to images of Africans on the part of these Hohenzollern brothers. One element I've delayed discussing is the implication of Salib bin Bishr's Jewish identity. While early Arabic and late 19th and 20th century historians of science have not doubted that Saul was Jewish, the Krakow manuscript makes no mention of it. I can't be sure whether Joachim or Johannes Carion, the court astrologer, knew about it, but if they did, they certainly suppressed the author's Jewishness. In 1510, Joachim launched a cruel persecution of the Jews in his territories, something which damaged his reputation even among his Christian contemporaries. Hauser's miniature, therefore, almost certainly was not intended to express a double black Jewish otherness, however interesting we might find that combination today. Indeed, it may be that Zebel's phenotype, his physical appearance was shifted to emphasize the link of Arabs to Africa rather to a related Semitic group of the Jews. There's one last potential contributing factor to Zebel's African appearance in the miniature that must be considered. In the Krakow text preface, Zebel is a sage, sapiens, but by 1592, in the first printed edition of the text, he's called in the book's very title, I think you can see this up top, Regis et Sapientis, king and sage, a wise and ancient uh, Arabian king. Where did this royal rank come from? If Carrion and or Joachim I had understood Zebel in this way, though it's not directly expressed in the text of the Krakow manuscript, and conveyed this idea to Hauser, a clear association with one of the three Magi kings would have been perceived. By 1520, it had been normative for nearly a century for German artists to depict one of these early worshipers of Christ as a black African, so an exotic figure from the East who was both king and sage would have easily been surmised to be dark-skinned. And here you can see the crown on, his, uh, on the Magus's head. The biblical description of the Magi, though it said nothing about skin color, strongly implied that these wise men were astrologers as they were able to understand the meaning of the star of Bethlehem, which guided them to Christ. Without this Christian framework, it's unlikely that either Hauser or his patron would have opted for a black African characterization of Zabel. Uh, Tim, I think I've done my 45. Um, I think it might be time to, to quit and take some questions. I have about another five minutes. Uh, you, guys, you, guys, you guys hold up for five. I'll try to be quick with this last bit, just kind of cap it off. Now, the years immediately following the creation of the Kallenberg altarpiece and Hauser Zabel witnessed tremendous disruption and change in the religious and cultural life of many parts of German-speaking territory. In the 1540s, Saxony and Brandenburg, where the black St. Maurice had flourished, had fully embraced Luther's version of the Reformation and the veneration of saints began to wither away. 
The Black Maurice survived only as a civic emblem. By around 1600, the center of innovation in the European depiction of black Africans had shifted to Rome, where the established imagery of the Magi was reinvigorated by contact with African Christians. Nevertheless, some Lutherans were reluctant to let go of the black Maurice and the ideal of universal Christianity, he implied. In Halle, with Magdeburg, the city which had been most dedicated to the Black Maurice and the center of Cardinal Albrecht's operations, a most curious picture was erected in the Marktkirche, originally a Catholic church dedicated to Our Lady in 1593. And uh, on the right, you can see the interior in the picture. This vast but little-known work, which I first encountered during a trip to Halle last summer, was painted by the obscure Heinrich Lichtenfelser. It's placed high up at the east end of the church, a kind of strange Protestant substitute for an altarpiece. And I must apologize for the poor quality of my images here. Uh, I had to take the photos from a distance under poor light conditions, and I haven't found a photographer to improve on them yet. However, as soon as I entered this church, it was apparent that the left side of the picture uh, and let me zero in on it now. The left side of the picture included several images of Africans, and a closer study revealed a complex but carefully thought-out program. All of the many small scenes of the picture relate to chapters 1 to 10 of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, perfectly in keeping with Luther's mandate that religious art should focus on the Bible alone. This book of Scripture is all about spreading the new Christian faith, back in the day of Christ, and the most widely known of evangelical events from it, the Pentecost, which is up here, and the mission of the Apostles, which is partly blocked down here, are on the right side. At the lower left, we see an elaborate narration of the story of the Apostle Philip's encountered with a Ethiopian eunuch, an official at the court of Queen Candace of Ethiopia, as recounted in Acts chapter 8. Philip meets the eunuch as he's traveling in his chariot, studying the prophecies of Isaiah. Note that while he may not be writing, this eunuch is certainly reading. You can see the open book here. Uh, still a little blurry, but closer. Black African attendant to the eunuch is also visible at one end of the chariot. Further down, over here, Philip baptizes the kneeling eunuch. Sections like this along the lower edge of the picture would have been most visible to the congregation in the church. A little higher up, a fourth dark-skinned figure is visible. I'm still working on trying to figure out uh, this character, but probably based on a passage in chapter 10 of Acts, which emphasizes that Gentiles as well as Jews are eligible for the redemption offered by Christ. This may be uh, a household servant sent by a new convert called Cornelius to fetch St. Peter so that St. Peter could preach. Together, these black African figures in Lichtenfelser's canvas act to remind the Lutheran faithful of the meaning once conveyed by Maurice and to assert that the Reformed Church was not willing to cede the task of global evangelism to the papacy. To conclude, in bringing to light and contextualizing the black African presence in the Kallenberg altarpiece, Hauser's portrait of Zabel, Beham's discovery of the True Cross, and Lichtenfelser's Acts of the Apostles. I'm not arguing that these works played a crucial role in the European relationship with 
and representation of black Africans in the later 1600s and 1700s. There was an expanding presence of black slaves and free servants in German princely courts, and a consequent rise in images of Africans in the decorative arts during this later era. But by and large, the German-speaking world was not much interested in colonial or evangelical projects until the 1800s. Instead, these images speak to us of a remarkable diversity of European and especially German ideas about black African identity during the Renaissance, an absence of rigid stereotype in the conceptual sense that was sadly not potent enough to avert the new ideologies justifying the mass enslavement of people of color soon to be constructed in several parts of Europe and its colonial possessions. But these works are a kind of visual residue that perhaps we can recuperate a little bit uh, as we try to think about a more varied presence, uh, a more varied black presence in the visual imagery of Western culture. Thanks. Anyone have some questions? Taylor, you're yeah. Um, I was just interested in the context of when you, know, you decided to use black African as opposed to just African or a darker skinned person or a black person. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a tricky business, and I'm sure you folks have grappled with it a little bit in the, in the seminar. Um, uh, what's, what's, a, what's a quick way to address it? I guess I would say that I am deliberately fudging the issue a little bit by using a range of different terminology. Okay? Um, uh, it's possible to give a talk like this and start out by saying, well, anytime I say Africans, I'm referring to people of color. That's the way sometimes it's done. Um, it's uh, possible and it could be useful to acknowledge the diversity of complexion, not only between Mediterranean regions and south of the Sahara, but throughout the continent. Uh, and I think that's important to do. But I think I am trying to identify a particular construction in European culture in this period, right? in which there is, to some degree, a distinction made between all of Africa, and in particular the Mediterranean coast, and those areas south of the Sahara that Europeans come to identify as exclusively dark-skinned. Right? And so that's, that's what my black African construction is mainly trying to do, not to, not to create an, a, uh, a self-defining identity but uh, an identity in the mind of 16th century Europeans. But it is, uh, it, it is an oversimplification in various ways. Were I to use the term African in general, then I would again have this problem because it is clear that some North African peoples are represented in European art without a particularly dark complexion, right? Um, uh, that comes up a little bit in my comments about Maurice and the Kallenberg altarpiece and trying to draw some distinctions there. But it's hard to, to draw the distinctions too finely. But it's an issue. I, I agree. Uh, how much during this period of time, how much did they, the, the, the people in, in Renaissance Europe know of, of Africa and its empires? And the reason I ask is I'm wondering whether or not the placement of these figures in, in these kind of privileged positions right. 
might have to do with this, this, this thought that perhaps is, well, there was a Christian kingdom in Africa. It totally is. I mean, the, 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 the main motivating force for darkening one of the three magi, which there's nothing in the Bible about skin color of these wise men, right? They come from the east, doesn't even say how many there are. Very, very basic information. So the main, uh, the point at which artists and writers, and this happens kind of together, begin to say or to show the, typically the third and youngest wise man, but sometimes the one middle in age, as a black African. The moment when they do this is in the late 1300s and the early 1400s at the moment when European knowledge about the Christian emperor of Ethiopia becomes much more widespread and begins to excite a number of Europeans, uh, both in the kind of religious sense, but also in the political sense. They, they, they begin to get the idea that this ruler, often referred to as Prester John, uh, uh, in an outgrowth of an earlier medieval legend, might be just the ally that European Christians need to uh, turn back or to defeat the Islamic states in North Africa and the Middle East. Okay. So, uh, there's no question that the knowledge of the king of Ethiopia, there's also knowledge about figures like Mansa Musa uh, in the uh, uh, Empire of Mali. Uh, um, uh, he's not a Christian, of course, although there's some chatter about whether he might be tolerant of Christians or interested in Christianity. Um, there certainly is a widespread notion that is sustained throughout the 1500s that Sub-Saharan Africa is a place where there are powerful nobles and rulers. And I didn't go into what happens, um, I only briefly alluded to what happens in Rome just after 1600 when a Christian emissary of uh, uh, the Christian king of Congo, now Congo and Angola in South Central Africa, arrives in Rome. Uh, the big deal is that this man represents a king, that he's a cousin of the king. Uh, there's even uh, a reference to the fact that he might be the king, although once he arrives they realize he isn't. Uh, so th there's a lot of focus on the idea of powerful African rulers, especially Christian ones, but not exclusively, that promotes this more varied kind of representation. Yeah? Um, does being non-Christian uh, change the, the depiction of the blacks? You mean in the, in the astrologer well, image? We have, well, we have yeah. that, but yeah. about specifically Muslim. Because, you know, it, did. it did, it did, it um, did. What I'm not showing you here, um, and there aren't actually all that many German uh, instances of it in the 1500s, but if I were to go to Spain or to Italy uh, or to certain other European areas, it wouldn't be too hard to find. Uh, there are quite a large, and there are some German examples too, there are quite a large number of uh, images, for example, of the crucifixion uh, in which among the quote-unquote, exotically dressed figures, people wearing turbans, long robes, clothing that is, is not identified with Christian Europe, you see figures of color. Okay. Uh, in some of those images, uh, what you're seeing then is an assimilation of ancient Romans and or Jews to modern Muslims, and one of the ways of denoting that slippage between the two groups is to show one or sometimes a couple of the figures as dark skin. And in fact, at the show in Princeton, uh, there's one good example of this kind of imagery uh, on display. 
Um, there's also a tradition of showing black Africans, and even Durer at least made a drawing of this, as uh, torturers or executioners of Christian saints. And uh, one of the implications there, there are several implications in those images, but one of the implications there is that um, although the torture or the execution might have taken place in early Christian times before the coming of Islam, that the suffering of these saints is like the suffering of Christians persecuted uh, by Muslims. And again, one of the ways of denoting Muslim identity might be to include a figure of color. So that's a whole parallel kind of imagery uh, that is quite distinctive. Um, uh, it's, it's less common to see the more admiring sorts of images of black Muslims, right, in the art of this period. Uh, so would they be more caricatures? Uh, yes, the, those images on the whole are more likely not to seem like they were derived from the study of particular individuals, uh, but more along the lines of a certain set of features Sometimes with the features being exaggerated, either the skin color becomes sort of wildly exaggerated, not brown, but literally uh, black. Uh, uh, sometimes hostile expressions on the face. Uh, you in some of those, you come a little bit closer to the sorts of 19th or earlier 20th century American caricature of African Americans that, that most of us are still familiar with. Uh, uh, that's kind of a broad generalization about it, but I think it's generally correct. So, so Christianity is, is meaningful, and associating a person of color with Islam, on the whole, tends to put them in a more problematic category. There are some exceptions to that, um, uh, in terms of North African rulers of color, um, but that's, that's generally true. There was another hand. Linda, did you have something? Oh, I, I just was fascinated by these women of ladies-in-waiting yeah. and the idea of status, I mean, because women-in-waiting are of extremely high status. Yeah. Um, and I was just curious, because I've never thought about it mostly, do you see similar images in, in, in Italian, not Venetian, but, but further? And, um, and especially with this relationship of, of kings, I mean, when you get people like Andrea Corsale, who's traveling from Ranchi court to various kingdoms, right? and you know whether some of that comes back into Italian imagery, and when it does. Yeah, um, you know, I, they're, they're, in Italian imagery, there is one work that I think I sent by mistake to Tim at one point. Um, uh, Ghirlandaio fresco with members of Strozzi family. Um, with a black woman in the entourage, but she's not clearly presented as a donor. There are lots of images of either court servants or servants to the upper classes, but the donor position is different. There is one incredible Italian example of a black donor, but the donor is not a lady-in-waiting or indeed a, a male court retainer. He is the sole donor to the picture. The sole donor. In other words, he's not a subsidiary figure, I might somewhere have an image of this. I can show it to you later. Uh, but basically, it's a picture of the Madonna in heaven, flanked by saints, and kneeling. Uh, you gonna try to find that, Tim? Yeah, it's a stunning image. Kneeling, or as it's hard to say if he's kneeling because he's partly cropped by the frame, is an amazing 
likeness of a black dark-skinned donor, an Afro-European, let's, let's call it, or uh, uh, maybe just a European, uh, uh, pursuant to our discussion earlier. There you go, right? And this is probably School of Ghirlandaio. Um, uh, uh, the artist is not you know, particularly skillful overall, but the portrait of this guy wearing not court finery, but a kind of a black jacket, right, uh, is stunning. So on the Italian side, this is the major example um, that, that I can show you in that way. We, no, we have no idea. We have no idea. Kate, Kate Lowe has uh, uh, exerted herself to try to figure out who this might be. We've been thinking about what the town is back there, which would help. Uh, but we have not yet pinpointed who this is. Uh, but probably Tuscan, probably 1490s or so. Uh, so, so, I mean, one of the, I'm glad you asked the question so that I could show this. And thank you, Tim. Uh, what, what this tells us is there is, painting like this in particular, in some ways even more than the ones I've showed you, it tells you that in Europe at this moment around 1500, there is still a way into a kind of European Christian religious identity might have been a tricky way, might have been a way that only a few people managed to navigate, but there was a way into uh, uh, fully taking on the cultural features of European Christianity for a person of color without necessarily trying to pretend that you physically did not look different from the majority of Europeans. You could do this, right? Uh, but it was rare. This is, we know about this work. It's not like I can show you a dozen of them. Uh, 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 but again, it, it speaks to a moment where there was some still potential flexibility about this. The coat of arms of the Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. You want to know what? Okay. That, uh, you, you've been asking me great questions today. That's your second great question. Um, I've been showing that coat of arms uh, quite a lot, and I have to say I was very disappointed by Benedict's retirement, because now I can't claim that it's the Pope's coat of arms. I have to say it's the, you know, the Pope Emeritus's coat of arms. Um, uh, go Google it up if you're curious. Coat of arms of Benedict the, the 16th, right? Uh, it's got several components in it. It's got a bear and some other things. There's a head of a black African uh, crowned, I believe. Uh, this is because Benedict, uh, part of his resume was that he was Archbishop of uh, Freising, uh, uh, which is the religious uh, uh, province, originally including Munich, I don't know if it still does, uh, in southern Germany. That coat of arms with the black African crowned head goes back at least to the early 1300s. And my guess is, though this is another one of the many things I cannot prove, is that it relates to Frederick uh, allegiance to the Hohenstaufen and Frederick II. However, I don't think that's why Benedict kept that in his coat of arms when he became Pope. Because I think you get some choice at that point. Just as you can choose your own name, you get to choose your own coat of arms a little bit. Ben, of course, both this time around and the last time around, there was a lot of speculation. Is this the moment in which uh, a person of black African descent, either from the Americas or from Africa itself, might be elected Pope? That's where the Catholic Church is growing these days, in particular, didn't happen. But uh, it, the coat of arms, at least, sends a message that the papacy still claims that right of universal evangelization. Okay? And the crown on the figure 
removes the figure from being seen in a particularly negative way, right? Um, you, you can't say that the figure is subjugated uh, because he still retains the marks of, of power and authority. Um, so the church is still, is still playing around with these things. Um, I think I looked at, I'm not sure the coat of arms of, of Francis I has appeared yet, uh, but I will look at them with interest when they do. But I, I don't think he has a, uh, I, don't, I don't think he has a legitimate way of incorporating <laughs> figure of an African into it. Any other, any, any other questions? Well, if not, thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.